Hello and welcome to A Fallow Deer, the Deer Shed Festival story. I'm Dave Simpson, music critic and writer, and you might have guessed it, Yorkshireman born and bred. You might have seen me running around the spoken word tent at Deer Shed in recent years, and my family and I have attended all but one of the 10 Deer Shed festivals. Uh, with no festival on the card this year, there's a feeling that the summer has almost been cancelled. But to soothe the pain of missing out, the Deer Shed team have come together to make this podcast and look back on the last decade of Deer Shed. In this, the first of our three-part series, I'll be having a socially distanced chat with festival founders Kate Webster and Oliver Jones to find out how Deer Shed all came to be in the first place. We decided, right, we're going to risk that money mm. on this, and that's what the budget will be. Right. <laughs> wasn't a great year for budgeting, was it? No, no, we learned a lot. I got better at it. Um, we were about half, we were about 50% out. It was 79,000, I reckon, and we lost about 7,000 pounds. Right. So that wasn't bad, considering we, you know... Yeah. 2020, that's just a drop in the ocean. <laughs> well, it is. That's how much we've lost this year. <laughs> yeah. So I suggest you grab yourself a brew, sit down with Kate, Oliver and myself for part one of the Deer Shed Festival story. How many married couples are on festivals in the UK? Are there any more? Oh my God! I'll try and think. Oh, um, um, Rob DeBank and Josie yes. are the famous, the famous festival organisers. Right. So there is a precedent. Rob DeBank has a much higher media profile than we do, and does yoga on his yacht <laughs> around the Isle of Wight. You, can, you can't really have a yacht in first or top. No, cliff, can that's you? true. I don't think that it was. Is, is, maybe there's a puddle or a river that you could find to put a yacht on. Yeah. But. Down, down the lake, I suppose. <laughs> it's not quite deep enough, really. Tell, tell me about your backgrounds. Are you, how you first met and how long you've been married and how on earth you've ended up running a, a festival in the first area? In first. So I was born in Ripon and grew up in Rainton, which is just down the road from the Baldersby Park Festival site. Yeah. My dad's the farmer. And from sort of North Yorkshire, I moved to London and started working in the music industry, started in publishing and then into music management. Uh, and as part of that, I moved to Bristol because mm. I got a job with a management company there. And that's when I met Oliver. He was uh, working in a recording studio, a small place. He'd only moved to Bristol a, a little bit before. So uh, that, that's where we met. Right. Where were you before you were in Bristol? Well, I'm from the Midlands, Evesham, famous for very nice asparagus. And, and a haunted house, I believe. I've seen, oh, in fact, right, I've okay. stayed there, the Abbey Manor, a haunted house. Oh, right. Didn't know that. Yeah. It wasn't haunted when I lived there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, hats off to them for creative tourism ideas. Yeah. Um, so then I went to Bangor Uni and I did uh, electronics there. And I wanted to be a recording engineer, so, so that's all you could do. There weren't all these courses at the time mm. where you could do any number of courses now. So then I moved, yeah, moved to Bristol from there to seek my fame and fortune in a band. But I did, end, like, like, you know, I did end up pestering the guy who owned the sort of big studio in Bristol, a guy called Andy Allen. That was a studio called um, Coach House. So, yeah, I got a job there. Right. And my first day there, Portishead recording dummy. So it was that, it was that sort of weirder start wow. for me. I remember coming back telling Kate, it's quite a good, interesting band in. <laughs> you know, could have been anyone. No one knew who they were then. And did you bond over music? Because obviously Bristol, you know, as you just mentioned, Portishead, you know, it, it was and is a, a real music hub 
specifically in, in those days, I'd imagine, I mean, that's sort of mid-90s, isn't it, when they, when they will have been there. So you're looking at Tricky, Massive Attack, that whole kind of Bristol dub, it's post-punk scene, um, and the Feckler and Sarah yeah. Records. It's a massive like, hub of music, really, at that, in that period. It was, wasn't it? We, I mean, we bonded more on going to gigs because we both knew nobody else in Bristol. <laughs> so mm. that was kind of and mountain biking, really. We went biking and stuff. My music management company was looking after people like Sheep on Drugs. Oh, I remember Do you remember well. Sheep on Drugs? Yeah, they were kind of leather-clad, yeah. swear-word-peppered yeah. electro duo, as I remember. That's right. And you can imagine me. I was only 19 from North Yorkshire. <laughs> I've been in London yeah. for maybe a year before that, but um, there was a lovely crowd in Bristol and they were mm. really accommodating and they'd accept anybody. And that was what mm. I really liked, that you could go as a naive North Yorkshire girl and say, I want to work in the music industry and mm. they'd take you along and not judge you in any way. Yeah. And that's what I thought. That's what the music industry I loved. So it was that side of it, I think, that mm. attracted me. And it was it's a nice self-contained city as well, isn't it? It was an hour and a half from London or whatever, but it had its own identity, especially that, especially that trip hop era, yeah. which we um, we left right at the peak of it. Actually, yeah, it was an amazing time. Actually, uh, my band, the bands I worked with, were much cooler than the bands. Yeah, they were. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> U Nation, do you remember yeah, U Nation? God, yeah. No, no, there you go. Why did you leave, and where did you go next? Well, Oliver had started working in London again, hadn't you? You'd got a job. Yeah, I, my apprenticeship at the studio was very quick. And I was working with all these bikes. So I'd done massive attack sessions and blue aeroplane sessions and things like that. Wow. Um, but I've not really had much of a, I've not had the two-year foundation where you weren't allowed to touch mm. anything. Yeah. But then that, that, that whole process for me happened in about three months. But then at that time, I wrote off a load, I remember writing off a load of letters to producers in London. And Kate had started getting bits of film production work in London. And I sent off a load of letters and got one, one back, mm. which was enough to get us... And because of that, the association of those all those bands at that time, you didn't have to be any good. The fact mm. that you could say, "Yeah, hand on heart," I was in the I was in the room with Massive Attack when that happened. <laughs> that was enough to get to get me started. Anyway, and Kate, I can't remember. I, what I you had, first. Well, I had an interview for a music management company. During the interview, a chap called John Reynolds walked in, and because I was a huge Sinead O'Connor fan, I knew exactly who John Reynolds was, who he'd record with. I knew who Jar Wobble was. I knew all mm. I could, you know, I could reel it off, which obviously impresses in an interview when most people perhaps wouldn't have had a clue who yeah. it was. So um, I started working for um, David James and Diane Wag, and we managed Mike Scott, um, Beth Orton, Republica. So it moved more into more successful bands yeah. <laughs> than perhaps I'd been involved before. Yeah. What brought you north then? How did you, you know, relocate to the north of England? I think we both got fed up, actually. The thing that did it for me, I had a six-week session. The lead singer was 16. He'd just done his GCSEs. It's a band called Stony Sleep. They were all, I think I can say, on ketamine. The, 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 the bass player and the drummer was 14, and I just I looked around me. didn't see anyone who was uh, as old as me. I would have been, you'd been like 28, something like that. <laughs> and I thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this anymore, really. And... I, I never, I was always in and out of recording jobs in London, so I never had like a stellar career. But that, that session finished it off for me, like six weeks without a day off and amongst these crazy, Yeah, I did our time, I think. Yeah, mm. the next step was for me to manage bands. And you know what, I'm not, I don't, I tried it for with a few little bands, but it wasn't me really. I'm not, yeah. I, 
I haven't got that that edge that you needed in the uh, late 90s walking into record companies. It's a <laughs> very different environment then, wasn't it, as well? The, the late 90s music industry was very cutthroat. Lots of money around, though, yeah. and a lot of a lot of drug abuse, really, to be honest. You know, tons, tons yeah. of those sort of characters. Yeah. You know? Oh, ab- absolutely. That's one of the things that benefited me, that the fact that I was the person in the morning who was there and and sort of the nail in the coffin in, certain, in, in one job I had because when the band starts ringing through to talk to Kate on what the accounts are because you weren't out last night <laughs> with us, that's when the boss is going, well, maybe, you know... <laughs> There's something gonna miss here. So yeah. yeah, the paths were divergent, I think. Yeah. So and it was like, well, where do we go? Let's come home. Come, mm. you know. What did you envisage doing when you came back up? Did you envisage taking over some of the farm or? Well, I'd started in preparation of moving north. I'd started doing some more bookkeeping. My last job in London was being Vanessa May's bookkeeper. Right, it was quite eye opener. <laughs> <laughs> So I was always thinking, well, even then you could see being able to be a remote mm. bookkeeper. You know, nowadays it's just, of course, you can work in Yorkshire. and But then, mm. it, you know, you had to send big, well, still big envelopes of the receipts. Mm. Musicians really don't like accountants. Creatives don't like yeah. accountants. And yeah. I could talk between both parties. So that's my skill is basically I can take what the accountant's saying and then explain it in layman's terms. Just give me the bag of receipts yeah. and I'll fill in the, the bits. Yeah. So that's what the aim was really for me. I come up, get a few qualifications and then start collecting clients, which is right. what I did basically. I guess the purpose for going up north was to have kids really. And, mm. and we started having kids yeah. and then I was tied to, and we were building our own house at the time. And I think I was tied to bringing in the money. So my period of, of glamorous jobs ended I think for a while there like well I traipsed into Leeds every day and got abused and was rubbish at whatever I did (laughs) but it's that whole thing he'd spent you know 10 years in London having jobs that paid masses or nothing for six months whilst Mm. I paid the rent so it was you know payback time yeah 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 (laughs) at what point did you kind of get the germ of an idea that hang on we can trade all this daft existence in for we can have an even dafter existence we can run a pop festival well, my dad always talked about putting a festival on the site right. because of the natural amphitheatre yeah. where the main stage is now. Has he been to Glastonbury as a, as no, a youth or anything? No, not, not at all. Right. And he's, he's more classical music. He was in right. choral societies and things. So he was thinking that party in the park kind mm. of, you know, you bring your picnic and right. there's a classical performance. Yeah. That's what yeah. he was thinking. So he'd always, he'd always talked about that. And once we came back, there was more conversations on that sort of thing. We started doing gigs. Well, we'd never promoted any. We wouldn't have ever thought of ourselves as promoters because yeah, that sounds no. like. Yeah. Um, but we started doing, Kate, it was you who wanted to do it. I think probably a bit bored in between. Well, mm. bookkeeping isn't the most exciting thing. Mm. And also having kids, I think I'm sure many women find the loss of identity sometimes quite tricky. Yeah. And actually it was a way, the, doing the shows was a way of, you know, remembering what it was like working in London in the music industry, getting little shows up, getting people you admire. Where did you put the shows on then? Were they in, in and around the Thursk? Yeah, so the courthouse in Thursk. Yeah. Which is where In the Dock comes from, you see, in right. terms of the stage, the, the, Sta- yeah. the Deer Shed stage yeah. name. So yeah. they, these were called In the Dock, the dock. these yeah. nights. And because we'd, I'd pretty much done every job in the music industry except promoting. So it was a bit <laughs> like, okay, yeah, let's, we're going to have to try this. And I can honestly say selling 70 tickets was as stressful as selling, Mm. you know, 10,000 for 
the festival because it's your own money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to. I mean, what were the, what were the acts that you were putting on? Were they presumably not very well known acts? Well, you know, they wouldn't be. It wouldn't be Mike Scott and Vanessa May. No, but I did go through all my bookkeeping clients. So we had Miles Hunt from mm. Wonder Stuff. Right. Um, I think he was probably one of the early ones. Right. Um, we had Jay Tillman as well, the now Father John Misty. Yeah. When he was, he must have left Fleet Foxes yeah. at that point, mustn't he? And he was just yeah. going out as Jay something Tillman, I can't yeah. remember. But he came with a whole load of his crew because it was a tiny, it's quite small, but he came with a whole band. They all stayed at our house, didn't they? And wow. it was always quite nice because they'd come back and stay at your house. Yeah. And and then you'd have a good, you know, everybody's, they've all got good stories to tell, haven't they? So yeah. you get the cheese board out and the wine. They turned out quite nice socially, kind of, for us to doing that for a couple mm. of years. And also just get used to the feeling of selling tickets yeah. <laughs> and what you've got to do for that. Yeah. And you started collecting people around you. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that we've been quite fortunate and also maybe been aware that we've been doing, but it's bringing people around, the, the right people to do that. So when our youngest went to school, Dulcie, we said, right, this is the year we need to do it. Mm-hmm. We, we'll do it. And similarly, our friends, Paul and Vanessa, who live in Thursk now, but they are both music industry. You know, they have a big impact on the on the lineup right. policy. Yeah. And they came, they moved to Thirst that year. So again, there's more people there to write. They can handle artist liaison and mm-hmm. help with all that. It's funny, even the, the acts that you mentioned that you were booking in the courthouse, they're very deer shed type acts. And I can see a kind of a, a deer shed ethos there even before the festival existed. You know, you've clearly got a certain kind of act that you like. And you mentioned the social aspect. You know, I mean, you, the, all those people, they, they, they are the kind of acts that you would imagine be pretty decent people. You know, they're not going to be trashing your house. You'd be booking acts that fit a certain... Yeah, I think that's probably true. Around that time, I think it was the house concerts. I remember going to see, Mm. there was a a band that we had, I don't know if they're going now, called the Grown Box Boys, and Mm. we went to see them in somebody's house (laughs) near York, you know, when there was only like 15 people in the front room. So it was perhaps of the time, I guess. Mm. And I always think that you'd sort of, it is like having a dinner party, you know, you don't want to, you ought to think of it in that way. Certainly, if you treat the musicians and the artists well, they go back and talk to their friends and their agents yeah. and the managers. And we can't offer the biggest billing or the biggest fee, but at least we can treat people well. And you get people come back, don't you? A lot, there's a lot of artists have come back to Deershed, you know, played once, twice, three times. And, and, and they will, you know, they'll remember it and they'll think, oh, yeah, I had, a, I had a nice time. I mean, when I've spoken to artists, you know, they've, they've often said, oh, I, I love it here. You know, yeah. it's it's a really great experience as an artist to, to come and play there. And they walk around the site and they muck in and they just feel really at home and there doesn't seem to be a lot of pressure on them. You know, that maybe they can do things at Deershed. They wouldn't be able to do it at Glastonbury, they, but they can just wander around and you know, enjoy the festival as much as anybody, you know, as a punter. There have been times when I sort of send offers and you know that they've got kids or you know they've got a parent in the area and you, you go, you know, this is the gig to bring your mum to, you know. So Steve Mason always, his sister lives in Leeds, I think. So right. comes with his nieces and who yeah. have both been on stage I've twice, them, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it, there are a few that you can, you know, they like to come because they, there's, yeah, it's a safe one to bring your nan yeah. to. yeah. <laughs> And I think that's one of the the sort of hurdles to getting started. I think for anyone who was foolish enough to start their own festival, at least <laughs> to gain the confidence of the agents, really, mm. because mm. you know you've not done it before. But if you had a little 
we obviously have a little bit of background in the industry. Mm. That must have helped when we got started. How so, did you pitch it to those agents? You know, I mean, you, presumably you had the name, which does come from literally a deer shared. The building that is yeah. a building. Yeah, we had actually the first year. My friend Claire, who is an agent, booked it, and she would send offers out, and we'd go, "Why aren't they answering? Why aren't they answering?" She mm. was like, "This is just you just have to wait, just wait." And um, so she did it first, and we kind of the the second year it was like, you know what, I I see I now have seen how you do it. I'll just do the mm. same and every so often I would go what do you think about this Claire you know and so and still now actually I can mm. ring her up and go this seems a bit out there um how much would you pay because there, there's there isn't a price tag that's that's the tricky thing right um so you kind of you're doing how which which venue did they play in Leeds and Newcastle and Middlesbrough York and how much was that ticket and mm. okay one of my clients was communion records for a while and they do a lot of live shows as well. So I saw a lot of settlements and that sort of side from an accountant's point of view. Right, yeah. So I could work back from a ticket price to, to yeah. roughly how much somebody... And and then because we're a festival, there's a premium for a festival mm -hmm. and all that. So there's, there's a little of know-how. It's not as straightforward as, yeah... Which I know you, you sometimes get audience members going, why don't you book the Kaiser Chiefs? And he's like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Um, Bring the Rolling Stones yeah, to first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which is lovely. People are just kind of keen, aren't they? And, yeah. Um, but, there, yeah, there's, there's definitely a sort of working out sort of levels and what you can get away with. And, of course, if you like the band, you'll pay more for it. Yeah. Did you have a rough idea for that very first one, how much money you could spend and how much you needed to pull back in to... To basically make sure you didn't lose a fortune. So we we committed forty thousand pounds. So we sold our flight in London, hadn't we? Not long mm. before, we decided right we're going to risk that money mm. on this, and that's what the budget will be. Right. <laughs> it wasn't a great year for budgeting, was it? No, no, we learned a lot. I got better <laughs> at it. Um, we were about half. We were about fifty percent out. It Ooh. was seventy nine thousand, I reckon. Wow. Um, and we lost about £7,000. Right. So that wasn't bad, considering we, you know... Yeah. 2020, that's just a drop in the ocean, actually. <laughs> well, it depends is. how much we've lost this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even so, to lose money on the first one would put some people off. You know, they would have thought, we can't do this, we can't keep losing this every year because we're going to end up completely broke. Yeah, and you, you must... have to remember everybody worked for free, so all our friends mm. who pitched in, you know, didn't take any money for it. It was... Mm. So really, the budget was way out, wasn't we it? We borrowed, yeah. I remember, just we borrowed tents off the scouts, didn't we? Mm. And then there was a very windy night. and One of the tents marquees, I just couldn't, I thought somebody had stolen it. <laughs> and it was in a tree. So just, <laughs> and all sorts of things like that happened. And then... Oh, a lady in the village, didn't oh, we? Oh, a lady we in the village her. was more, was just made us feel so guilty about it. And then, but then... The, the other trouble is that you've got if if you hire a tent off somebody they they tend to come pick put it up as well. Yeah. So we had all these tents yeah. to put up ourselves and oh and it, yeah it was and you haven't got time to do it mm. and then you're all rushing like mad and yeah and you things. think you can do it you can do it all yourself you know you can run a bar you can do food because mm. we're practical people but to try and do them all at the same time <laughs> on one weekend well. Is quite hard. We gave away two. We had two bigger portions, didn't we? Yeah. We did all the catering as well. A lot of it. <laughs> they just got. They were two Yorkshire proper Yorkshire portions, and lost money on that. 
the bar. It was a good that, grounding actually. for volunteers, though. You know, those ones came back. <laughs> we just had to reduce the offer over time slightly. The first one was the only one I've not been to. So what what was it like? So it was the wedding present, who were the obvious band to start with. Localish Local, heroes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and sets your stall out of what you want your music policy to be. Yeah. And it was the yeah. Bizarro anniversary as well, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And that and it was almost the first I think we were very lucky there actually. I'm not sure how calculated it was. But they took that was the first time they did that album, I think. The stage was where it was for I'm Clute, so right. on the back side of the deer shed. Yeah. Um, and we only had about six food tra- traders and then our food tent that we were doing ourselves. Um, and, and then a little tiny stage, which was the bus stop, the pallet stage, whatever. And we used the deer shed for comedy. Did we have com- yeah, com- I, we comedy? We did all sorts in there, I think. And that was that we had adult comedy, then we hadn't figured out it needs to be PG rated and mm. those sorts of things. So, yeah. No. How many people were there that first year? 2,000. 2,000 people. Yeah, but how much higher? It's still quite a lot, isn't it, really? Yeah, I, I think I wouldn't want to have to do it now mm. to start from scratch and to try and get that many people. But there wasn't a higher, as high a proportion of kids then. I think it was maybe two-thirds adult, one-third kids. Yeah. And I think we must have set off thinking that we would appeal to families. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it was because we'd... I guess Latitude Festival happened when we moved up to Yorkshire. I think it might have been its first first year. And that was like, well, I'd quite like to go to Latitude, but it, I'm not going with a small child. And from yeah. Yorkshire, it's a right pain in the arse, isn't oh, it? Oh, it takes an hour. I went last year for the first time and it took the best yeah. part of a day each way. Yeah. So I've never been. I always look at it and go, I'd really like that festival, but... <laughs> Great to see by helicopter, I would imagine. If you could get a helicopter from first, yeah. drop drop you on the side, it'd be perfect. Yeah. But driving there is not no. for the faint heart. No. So we never done that. And then Camp Festival also was would have stopped, started around about that time, mm. I think. So it was the obvious niche in the market in the north. There were quite a lot of other festivals around Leeds and... Harrogate area weren't, weren't they little ones that were yeah. cropped up Beacon, Beacons was going yeah. then uh, the Goltres uh, somewhere near yeah. York mm-hmm. um, um, Magic Lounge About Magic Lounge About, about yeah. of course yeah. so there were lots of yeah. people doing stuff and it was like well nobody's doing a family friendly festival up mm. here one of the ladies who works for me Rachel and still works for me is primary school teacher and she's mm. really creative and great on ideas and, mm. and it was like right well who have we got Ah, Rachel, you can do all that kid stuff. Mm. <laughs> you, you, you understand it. And she's very much from making things out of boxes or recycled. Yeah. It's not just bolt-on. <laughs> she's, yeah, creative. So that's an easy thing to just adopt. Because I remember sitting around the kitchen table with Andy Dalton and Paul and Vanessa and Rachel and Jim talking about what we could do, what how we could make the festival. We, You know, we can have an arts walk and lights and... And then we had to sort of go, right, well, what can we do well? We can do music and we can do kids stuff because we've got a teacher here. So, yeah. And we can afford that. Because <laughs> so. it's so much part of what Deer Shed is, isn't it, that? And, it, you know, it's almost like you seem to have almost put on the festival that you as a family that love music would want to see. So you put on the kind of acts that you would want to see, then you put things on for the kids and the whole thing becomes a family experience and every, everybody in the family or whatever generation and be a part of Deer Shed, and that, that's something that seems to have been pretty much from that first, well, for, certainly from the one I went to and, and onwards, and it's got more like that in you know over the years. I think that's right. I do remember when our kids were little and before we started Deer Shed, 
being at a festival, I think Oliver was playing in a dad band somewhere. <laughs> it wasn't a dad band. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the kids being totally bored, yeah. so uninterested. And that's yeah. the thing that you realise. Kids, not all kids want to sit and watch bands, do they? So yeah. actually, if there's yeah. something for them to do and distract them, then the parents can enjoy the music. Yeah. Oh. They really don't want to watch bands. I mean, they're, they're, you know, I say this as a parent of a little boy who has no seeming interest in music whatsoever, but goes to Deer Shed every single year. He's been to Deer Shed every year of his, of his life, really, apart from when he was two weeks old um, and has grown up with Deer Shed. And it's very much a part of his summer. He's, he's really going to miss it this year. But he, he he's not the, he's not there for the music. He's not interested in the music at all. He wants the, the bubble stall and the comedy and the theatre shows and the activities and all that kind of, and just the general hubbub. And occasionally he will sit on somebody's shoulder, you know, mine or my other half's, and, and watch a band. But it's not a primary thing. It's almost like, oh, yeah, there's, there's somebody plays music as well at this place, you yeah. know, but it's not the primary thing. And I guess that changes as they get a bit older yeah, and was, they suddenly start to leave the bubble stall. Yeah, I was going to say, because there is a point, so our kids are all now much, much older yeah. than, than yours. And you try and put stuff on, don't you, for kind of like 14, 15. And you soon realize that no matter what you kind of arrange, they won't be interested in it just on principle. Yes. And and so you, you then sort of think, well, you know, but actually at that age, they do start being interested in music, I think. Albeit they'll enjoy something and they won't tell you. Mm. That's what usually happens. So our youngest still sees it's for, well they're all into their music but mm. her tastes are kind of you know quite quite poppy now and that sort of gets to inform you and i think dear shed's music policy will kind of i oh i hope it will you know start to refl reflect those poppier acts what i might call guilty pleasures <laughs> katie perry and all those yeah um yeah. you can't forget that kids They've all probably grown up with music and they will become pretty big music fans mm -hmm. at some point. And there's always a band that, a couple of bands that Kate will book with half an eye on who the latest male or female heartthrob is for. Local, generally local, local kind of bands that. Declan McKenna. Yeah, we got, yeah, we got lucky you know, with him. He was a young yeah. guy and there's, yeah. there's always a few of those around and there's normally one early on Friday the poor band are thinking, why are we here? Why are we here? And then mm. all of a sudden, all those 13-year-olds turn up. And um, there was a Scottish band, I can't remember the name, they were on and they were just really miserable going, there's nobody going to be watching this. Right. And within sort of the opening chords, the tent just was full and it had gone yeah. around on social media. That's what you forget, that there are there is that audience there, but they will see the band that they want to see. They won't see the one that dad says you must see, <laughs> you know. Go and see a lot of stuff, don't you? I mean, I've bumped into you at gigs before where you've been checking stuff out and you've been, you've been specifically there checking something out, you know. On the music side, we'll definitely go and try and see everything. We mm. the, There's a few agents that know Deer Shed, have been to Deer Shed and have very music takes that I really like. So mm. they can suggest stuff. I'll go, yeah, I'll do that because I know what your roster is. And But most of the bands we'll have gone to see beforehand yeah. or have seen especially the headlines and things like that so i think the um going off the, off piste is more through choosing a theme you and megan will will kind of go and, like megan got the wrestling in last year or was it two years ago two years ago the wrestling the wrestling yes on the did you not see i don't the think wrestling? i saw the wrestling no what the heck was that <laughs> so there was a proper so it must have been generation xyz yeah, yeah. so 
you know, that Saturday four o'clock wrestling program. Yeah, we thought course, we'd have yeah. that. And Megan found that. <laughs> and that the wrestlers, we eventually had to put security with them because the kids were beating up the wrestlers so much. <laughs> they got, it was like, it was like, so um, I think we were going to have them back. I think they might come back next year because they went down so yeah. well. Will they bring their own security teams to protect, well, themselves, possibly, <laughs> protect themselves from armies of four-year-olds? <laughs> so, yeah, I think the theme is what will send Megan and Oliver off to get yeah. quite left-field things, won't you? They're like the science tent. and we've got, We're very ambitious for, for Dish at 11 with this whole idea of a, an immersive theatre sort of mm. game, which when I've tried to explain it, nobody really understands. Uh, so that sounds very dangerous as a... <laughs> as a draw, doesn't it? <laughs> Something you can't explain. Yeah. An augmented reality game. Yeah, it's quite off the wall, but it's just something to get excited about, something that I get excited about, so something else to, to do for the future. And also the, the theme has made us, you know, I can't remember what, what was the machines, and that's what brought the science tent on board. So it's allowed us to expand the Wilder Wild when we did we had the extra kind of wildlife area. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the theme allows us to bolt on something that we know that we're thinking we'll we'll, we'll keep we'll try it this year and if it's rubbish we'll get rid of it. But if it works we'll keep it going. Yeah. So it expanded very quickly, didn't it really? You know, from that from that probably from that second one onwards. We always wanted to aim to get to the where the main stage is now. That was the long term. If we right. can do that I mean, we purposely started just around the dish because, again, from going to other festivals that were starting out, they'd have this huge, big site, but no atmosphere. Yeah. So actually by bringing it in, you get a nice atmosphere. Yeah. And also the result of that is that this feels a safe area for children to actually go off and explore, but not too far. So that kind of benefited us. So there was always the, we have to move. And I think as we got more confident booking bands as well, we expanded the stage. So we... I mean, the first time we had the in the dock stage, the tent that mm. had it in, that's when we, you know, you've spent this much on a tent, we'd have something running in it, we'd do crafts in it, we'd do, and that was a really bad idea. But you, <laughs> you're thinking, I've got to get my money out of this debt. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. And you did all those all sort of, you know, off, off, off kilter activities, really, from well-being to the wild wood and... I don't know, like sculptures that, that light up and all sorts of stuff are dotted around the site, you know, which gives it a real identity. When we started, you're very conscious of going to other festivals and then, then being immaculately presented, you know, to have the manpower in that last week when everything gets put in to put the icing on the cake, to put those bits of site art up. Mm. And that's something that I think in the early days we struggle to do mm. the you know it's you've got to get all the basics in haven't you but then that the final little sprinkles on top which make the festival really magical or at least look magical i think we're only just now actually addressing but we've always the theme has always meant that there's been a showpiece kind of sculpture or whatever so that's kind of led it and that again that i have to oliver that was your idea always having the theme that, that like so we can do a new marketing yeah. campaign keeping it fresh and and although it doesn't really affect the music at all and what we book music that stays pretty much so it, it's great for the rest of the festival site mm. to be able to use that yeah, as an idea mm. when did that start the theme was it was, was it was it? the clue yeah. yeah yeah so the second year yeah. yeah just to support that performance really. yeah and we had we certainly had stargaze <laughs> what yeah. else did we do it's quite <laughs> nice i can't remember what else we talking of themes they, they went a little bit awry, didn't they? We got more and more ambitious. 
And so then I, I commissioned this guy. Did you remember number five? So number five, when we had Johnny Marr play. Yeah. And we had time travel, and I'd commissioned this kind of CGI artwork. And I think that's when that was the one year where it got a little bit conceptual. <laughs> you know I mean? It was like this. It was just, it was like this artwork for this amazing Pixar film, which never was. And it was like, why is that attached to a festival? It didn't make much sense, really. Yeah. But I was in, going indulging myself on this kind of. I think certainly the Johnny Marr year, which must have been yeah. number five. Yeah. I I remember that, and it it did feel. It it felt very, very special when he played because the whole field knew those songs and was singing those songs. And you kind of just sort of do a double take and you think, hang on, this is the legendary guitarist from the, and songwriter from the Smiths playing those songs in a field near Fursk. It, and I mean, it, you must have had yeah. that moment yourselves where you think, blimey, I, I, this is I actually getting the... quite big now. Yeah, you know? no, I was because it literally, I think that was the fullest that stage ever got. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember. Johnny arriving and and him walking down the trackway which we'd laid you know backstage with something of a swagger still yes. even at his age sort yeah. of thing and I just remember sort of sitting on the, on a picnic table in production saying don't look don't look don't look <laughs> trying desperately not to <laughs> and then the funniest thing was that a guy we had working on um, I think it was the deputy car parking man didn't have any idea who Johnny Marr was <laughs> and we had all these communal we had like a communal artist catering area Ian, he was called. So Ian sat down next to Johnny Marr, not knowing who he was, apart mm. from he kind of perhaps had a bit of makeup on, you know, I'm not sure, um, <laughs> and, and talked to Johnny Marr at length for about half an hour about his new caravan. <laughs> um, Brilliant. And Johnny, Johnny was uh, the, the gent, I'm sure he, he is, just entertained Ian for, for that time, didn't, you know, probably yeah. quite light relief from... Absolutely, uh, possibly you know. really actually enjoying that someone would talk about anything else but... When when did you last see Morrissey? Yeah, what what when, was that when song he, album yeah, like? When did yeah. you write this song? Yeah, yeah. So he, had no, he had no idea who he was. That's brilliant. You know, he, and Ian did. He was he became famous. And all the people who hadn't dared speak to Johnny Marr <laughs> were like, "Come talk to Ian. He's, he's got the low down." Yeah. And John Grant. That was another. You know, that was another classic headline. You know, it was very late at night, very loud. It was. It was quite. A, you know, it was a proper full yeah. on. You know, because you think of him as a kind of gentle singer-songwriter and a lot of his stuff is but that, that gig particularly he was getting well into techno kind of electronic yeah. beats and a, there was a lot of sub that, bass going I, on it was it was a real you know it was a brilliant headline show it was quite a difficult choice really because the lyrics on his album are quite strong adult adult yeah. um and a lot of parents have different views on children hearing those sorts of things mm. we're obviously quite laid back about it um, and so that, I think, was a turning point. I think we maybe lost some of the audience who thought we were going to be something quite comfortable. And, right. Um, yeah. And again, perhaps that was an important show to put on and say, no, this we're not going to compromise. It's after nine o'clock. If you've done any research, you'll know who John Grant is. Mm -hmm. But I thought he handled it really well because he came out and he swore straight away. <laughs> he did, that's all right, yeah. And it's like, again, if you're a <laughs> yeah. parent and the first thing they say is rude and he, he's obviously done it on purpose, yeah. walk away at that point. Yeah. Don't stand and listen to it and complain. There was a few complaints, <laughs> but hey. Mostly from people we knew, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it seemed to go that you'd bought, because the previous year was Johnny Marr, you know, everyone happy, um, John Grant, bringing some new people, actually, for whom... They're big John Grant fans, yeah. and there's, I think there's quite a few in, in yeah. North Yorkshire, but maybe slightly in all the people who were, who thought you might continue on that populist 
can we call it? Yeah. Uh, trend. And so we used to have Flip. Then the next year we had Richard Hawley headline. Yeah. Saturday night. And then the year after we had Kate Tempest headline. Mm. So, yeah, we've always sort of gone back and forth between giving people what they want and then giving people what they don't know they want. Yeah. I, guess. I think that's a really good ethos, that. It's nice to be. So people like Kate Tempest, that was her first festival headline. The Villagers back in year two. Wow, well, yeah. Three. But three. Yeah. And that, those are the nice things to do. Do put on bands that you really like and you think, well, you know, you're good enough to be. Mm. I know commercially perhaps they're not quite there yet, but they might, you know, it, you don't know, do you? So that's quite nice to be able to do that. Take I would imagine a lot of the bands that headlined Dish had a headline in a, their first festival, you know, that they're still well yeah. known enough, yeah. but but they can come to somewhere like Deershed, whether it's Kate Tempest or Drenge or whoever. Or Drenge, yeah. And they are headlining festival for the first time, and probably for them, it's probably a real watershed moment. You know, it's like, well, well can we can we pull this off? Yeah. You know, this is going to be make or break, and it'll it'll test us for where we go next if we can pull this off. Yeah. I think someone said that Goldfrap, we were their first. I find that hard to believe. Actually, I'm not sure that's true. Mad, isn't it? If that's well, it, true, it, it isn't. It isn't. I mean, I, I've seen them at Glastonbury, and when the when they go on at Glastonbury, they're like, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon or something. You know, they're not. 10 o'clock at night. So it's entirely possible it was their first headline. I mean, I thought they pulled it off. Oh, it, you know, it was they were, it was, they were, And that, that was one of those moments, wasn't yeah. it, when you think, hang on, Goldfrapp playing in a field <laughs> yeah. near Topcliffe, near Fursk. <laughs> the sound of that show was amazing. I know that's kind of a bit tedious and boring, but the sound quality sometimes at Deershed, if the weather's right, yeah. you know, HPSS, our production yeah. company, do a great job, but that... It was an amazing sound, and they brought their own, they did bring their own engineer. Who I think he's an engineer from the Pyramid Stage at Glastonbury, so he's top man. Yeah, but that was nice to hear. And that was in the you know what what people refer to as the new the new site. The new you site, know, yeah. um, it, it was in the I think your dad would have called the natural amphitheatre. Yeah. You know, which has probably always been crying out for a stage at the bottom of it, like yeah. it has now. When you first moved it, it was slightly disorienting to go. You know, because suddenly. You get there and it's like, hang on, I don't know where so-and-so is and where's the toilet and where, where's the bubble stand gone? And, and, and you're completely disoriented because everything is, it felt really radically different that year. It sort of felt like a proper festival site, didn't it? Yeah. In the, the food corridor kind of. Yeah, um, that's it. Yeah, I think we were big enough for the first time to, uh, to have designated areas of things, whereas before mm. we'd very much been everything mi mi mixed in together. And capacity must have gone up that when by moving the site and rearranging it like you did. The, the capacity must have leapt, or it feels a lot better. I don't think it was any more people than the year before, actually. But right. we'd had to we'd had to do it because we had the kind of issues with the school which share the grounds. Yeah. So we'd had so they were kind of like we'd made such a mess of their <laughs> ground the year before that I think they'd suddenly decided right well, we want to charge you a bit for doing this and and we'd. As a consequence of that, we thought, right, we, we'd, we'd made that move a year earlier than we perhaps would have. But then we'd had to move all the cars further out. So we'd come to some deals mm -hmm. uh, with our farming neighbours to, to put to use their fields as car parks. So it, it wasn't any big. It was, um, yeah, it was a great year for music, actually. Well, it didn't rain, I guess. Mm. And, the, and that the site move was more or less a success. And certainly we got it right last year. Yeah. And I don't know whether it'll ever change again. What have been the biggest kind of disasters? I do remember one year when there was some kind of some incident with the water. I think the water had run out, or the tap. Some, oh, there was something to do with the water. Yeah, well, that was that was year five, yeah. and and it went. It was there was so many ups and downs. It was really hot, 
So we'd had we'd had the water test. We were running our own water system um, from a borehole. From a borehole, um, which, we, which we don't use <laughs> anymore. And that and we had to jump through so many hoops with yeah. uh, the council to be sure it was safe. And on the Thursday, we got back a load of lab results from the water, and we basically couldn't use it. And it was blistering hot. Oh no! So we had to get thank you water direct. Got we, the credit card out. We, yeah. <laughs> and they came. <laughs> and they came. So that, it really, it didn't start very well. Wow. Um, and then this was the year when we were doing the time travel thing and we got this, um, we got some money off the Arts Council to do this kind of theatrical circus uh, around um, aliens arriving from the future. And we'd, bought a, we'd built a big time portal out of scaffolding and that was stressful as well. And then part of this narrative was that after Johnny Marr had finished... The, we'd had the aliens come out from the time portal the night before and, and then on the Saturday night we were going to have knights on horseback so I don't know whether you saw that but we had six knights on horseback after right. Johnny uh, literally you know the close the closing chords of light there is a light and then it goes out or whatever we finished with you know I have to orchestrate these six horses coming out of, of the time portal no one can know they're coming so, so they literally did appear out of nowhere that was really good. And then immediately afterwards, off the back of that triumph, there was a nightmare with the sound, and I had to tell, God, what were they called? There was a band who were playing Havoc with our lighting system because they bought this really big strobe. Nordic Giants. Nordic, Nordic Giants. Giants fantastic duo. Fantastic yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they'd run over, and they'd also were post-11 o'clock on noise curfew, and they had all this really heavy sub-bass, and I had to tell them, I had to tell them to get off, probably about half 11, and no one would listen to me. The, 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 the sound guy was like, was one of their team, and I just kind of rolled up, and it's like, we've got to call the show, and he was like, who on earth are you? Um, and that was, not, that was really, that was a nightmare. Wow. And then you're the worst, you're the least popular person in the tent, and it was a great, and they were a great band. Did they put, did they I had to leave, I had to, well, I had to, well, almost came to that. I had to be surrounded by security, get the sound man out, Talk to him, um, and then all of a sudden, me surrounded by all these massive guys. Oh right, okay. <laughs> so then I had to talk to the audience and say, "I'm sorry, sorry, sorry." And there's all these boos, and, and then it was advised by everyone else that I should leave the site because they were really fuming. Um, Just <laughs> Vanessa gave them a lot of beers, and they were all right. Yeah, they were right in the end. But I'd, and then and then it absolutely rained down. Yeah, chucked it down. Chucked didn't it, it down. Yeah. Which was quite good, actually, because it sent everybody to bed. <laughs> it's like, go. I've had loads of those things where I've, yeah. I've been so stressed I've nearly died. Wow. I think I, year four or five, I now don't have an official role over the weekend because it just is too stressful. Mm. You can't think straight, really. I mean, I'm overseeing a lot of the banking and making sure that sort of bars and things like that mm. are, are working. So I book all the bands, but we'll hand over very much to the artist liaison and just don't get involved. I come from that background. I don't want to hang out with bands. Yeah. It's not, you know, they, they're, yeah. they're here to do a job. I don't need to, they don't need to see me. Sort we of can't work together over the weekend. Can no, we? but I, I tend to get called when Oliver's gone a wall and the rest <laughs> of the management team can't speak any sense to him. What what keeps you going and what has kept you, you know, when, when you've had those sort of lows or blows, what has kept you coming back? What has kept you, you know, thinking, well, no, no we'll do it again next year? I, I mean, I think the team aspect of, of the people on site working it, that's a lovely feeling to congregate those people and the people who come back to work it every year. 
I think if you've ever been in a school play when you were a kid, and I see it when our kids do the annual production, there's yeah. just this coming together and a shared experience, which isn't all lovely. It's quite, it can be quite stressful and fraught. There's, mm. there's highs and lows. And that coming together to do something with everybody who's up for it, I think that's a feeling that I get every year. Megan sort of started with us when she was 19, 20. Yeah. And to see people like her develop, and we've had quite a lot of young people who come and it might be their first job at a festival and then go on to college and go into festivals mm. or theatre or music or whatever. So that's quite that's quite a nice thing. I mean, from the audience point of view, it is... It's lovely to see, you know, I think that one of the um, sort of heartwarming things that I had to, I had to leave the tent because I was bringing tears to my eyes was Honeyblood, Glaswegian yeah, band yeah. drummer, talking to a seven-year-old signing merch. And wow. this little girl was, I mean, it, it makes me well up now. Um, yeah. This little girl was a drummer, seven-year-old, and yeah. Honeyblood's drummer just got down to her level, chatted to her, and just was amazing with this little girl. And it was just that sort of thing. You just, yeah. you, you know, as I say, even looking back now, it brings tears, tears to my eyes. Cause I remember it well. Those, I thought somebody those died on And that's, that's when you see Dream Wife, how they communicate, the bands that get it right and how they communicate with those young audience is amazing to see. So that, that's a good, Scroobia, good Pit, thing. Scroobius Pip was another one, wasn't yeah. it? And, and Dan Lassac, which was another year five. Yeah. And had... And had um, because there's, there's some fruity language in that, isn't there? But there were so many kids on... I think we hold the record for the most people on shoulders at a Scroobius Pip wow. gig. And that was another one yeah. that was... Ezra Furman, similarly, again, young yeah. people around. It's You'll catch up one or two kids just at the right time, won't you? And, and that's, yeah. that's amazing. And presumably looking at the field when it is full like that and everyone loving something and, you you, you know, you must have that thing, well, I, you know, I made this happen. Yeah. You know, that must be a hell of a buzz. You know, it's probably like the courthouse gigs times a yeah, yeah. hundred. You know, yeah, absolutely. I, I think. think there's. I think what we normally do whenever the headliner is on, it is it is the pay. It sort of is the payoff. Is whenever the Saturday night or Friday night headline, me and Kate will kind of go off radio. Well, we just, we'll stop answering or whatever. Yeah. Or we can't hear, and we'll go and watch. We'll go and stand in the middle of the of the crowd, sort of thing for um for the headliners, and just have that hour or whatever, however long that show is, just have that hour to ourselves. And woe betide anyone who comes and. <laughs> talks to us <laughs> at that point sort of thing because it's i've worked literally have worked 12 months for this for this hour off sort wow. of thing is it yeah. is it sort of difficult as a married couple living this festival for you know 24 7 365 days a year is it stressful is it or can you just can you get away from it can you go and have a weekend in greece or whitby <laughs> or whatever and just just not not talk about the festival or do you or does, does it become something you talk about all the time yeah, we do talk about it all the yeah, time. Yeah, the really. kids do remind us to shut up about it from time <laughs> to time. So, yeah, it, I mean, I think we are better. If we do go away, we generally don't talk about it without actually having to say, let's not talk about it. Yeah. I think there's a knowledge that, you know, at a certain point in, in the evening, there's no discussion, you know. But you either talk, as a couple, you either you either talk about your jobs, don't you, or your kids. And I suppose it's like our sort of fourth kid in many ways. Whether I think I think we probably bore the pants off friends who were kind of interested, you know, and mind you, all of our friends are sort of involved in some way. So it's mm. kind of like you do have to catch yourself and think, right, well, we, we have talked about the festival for half an hour. Let's yeah. try and steer it somewhere else because otherwise yeah. it's embarrassing, isn't it? And there are other things going on. Absolutely, yeah. Which actually is, is reflected at Deershed. I mean, you know, I think 
that, especially in probably the, the, the last five or six years, there's, there's always some reminder of what's going on in the outside world, you know, politically or socially. That, that, that's probably been a, a greater part of Deershed in the last five or six years than, it, than previously, but it's always there. It's like, you know, there'll always be, a, you know, whether it's Owen Jones in the spoken word tent or whether it's, you know, some, one of the artists talking about what's happening in the, in the world. Or there's always a reminder of that this, this thing isn't happening in isolation. It's not a total escape from the world, even though it can seem like that in, the, in, in moments, definitely. I think we grew up going to Glastonbury in the 90s. That's what Glastonbury was all about. Wasn't it? it was part of it. It was yeah. built in, and yeah. I've been to Camp Festival where it's, it's a lot of fun and partying. That's not who Deershed is. Much to some people's probably disappointment, <laughs> but it's just slightly taken a bit more of that older kind of ethos into it. Mm. And I think really the kids coming through, certainly our children, they're more aware than <laughs> than yeah. the, perhaps they were for a, wh- a while ago. You have punched above your weight really for a decade. Do you think you oh, can continue nice. to do that? Shall we agree? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this year, with having to have it to a fallow year, has made us kind of quite retrospective, working out where we want to go for the future. And I think part of that is bringing a new crew together and new ideas and allowing your people to run with it, mm. you know, to take what we've learned and, and go, go forward, really. One thing that would I would like to see is that if you've ever been to WOMAD Festival. Oh, I love WOMAD. I've only ever been once, but it was incredible. It changed my life. Oh. Totally changed. It did. It literally, yeah. literally changed. It, it totally it exposed me to music that I would have never known existed. Yeah. You know, Nusrat Fatter Ali Khan was on, the Guo Brothers, world music, what yeah. they, as they used to call it in those days, you know, and loads of reggae. I mean, it was a total eye-opener. And the, but the origins there are sort of multi-generational, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. And yeah. that's what I think if Deershed yeah. can keep going another 10 years, then people who brought their kids will come back with their grandkids and it'll become a family thing, which is what happens at WOMAD. Yeah. And that's what I would really like to see, that yeah. that actually we're not growing into an enormous Glastonbury-sized thing or mm-hmm. going off into being a dance festival or whatever, but we're keeping that family and just extending the age thing. So mm-hmm. that would be a lovely thing to see. And that's where we end the first part of the Deer Shed Festival story. Please join me for the next part of the series, The Voices of Deer Shed, where I'll be reminiscing on the last 10 years of the festival with some die-hard volunteers, attendees, comedians and musicians. Comedy for families is something completely different. It's real good fun, you know. When you get a, when you get a tent full of people laughing and it's people from 3 to 73 for an afternoon, then, you know, you're, you're having a good time. I think there's a deer shed shaped hole in all our lives this summer, so please share your special memories of the festival with us. Use the hashtag MyDeerShedStory on any of the social media platforms so that we can all have a jolly walk down memory lane. And of course, let us know what you think of the series so far by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from me for now. Keep listening for episode two.